and welcome back to episode three of The Rebuild. If you are still listening to this podcast, if you made it through two episodes and thought, you know what, that was so good, I want to turn on episode three, then shout out to all four of you. I appreciate you. I'll be purchasing you Christmas gifts that might just be a pack of Skittles. It could be my favorite candy, a Twix bar, so those will be getting sent out to all four or five of you that are diehard Rebuild fans. Uh, Much appreciated. Um, Hope everybody had a good holiday. Hope everybody got to enjoy that big Browns victory over the Cincinnati Bengals. I am your host, as always, Jordan Zerm. You can follow me on the Twitter machine at Cleve Zerm. Um, You can also go to iTunes if you would like. Uh, Hit the five-star button because this is obviously the best Browns podcast uh, in the entire universe. You can also subscribe. You can leave a comment underneath the podcast if you want to roast me or if you just want to know why a 21-year-old kid knows so much more about football than I do uh, on my last episode. Once again, shout out to Benjamin Solak for joining me last week to talk about the Browns and, and everything going on with them from the coaching search to a lot of other things. Um, I'm hoping to have some national guests coming up next week or the week after, so get excited for that. Uh, but as always, thank you for listening Thank you for checking out any other Blue Wire pods. Lakers Film Room just got acquired by Blue Wire, so that's underneath that if you want to talk about, hear people talk about the Lakers and a former Cleveland Cavalier, LeBron James. There's also the Light Years pod, which is pretty fun to listen to right now because the Warriors are clearly trash. Uh, They're clearly losing in the first round of the playoffs, so you can listen to the existential dread coming from that podcast. That is great, but thank you for tuning in to the Rebuild um, and uh, and hanging out with me today for another episode, episode three. And today's episode is entitled The Case Against Greg Williams. And I hate to do this to you, Greg, so soon after Christmas, so soon after whatever holiday everybody else is celebrating. But, you know, there is a lot of forward momentum for Greg Williams as the newest head coach of the Cleveland Browns. There are people that want him to be announced the head coach. They want John Dorsey, Jimmy Haslam, all those guys to just stop the search right now. Stop the search, call it off, and just announce that Greg Williams will be the head coach of the Cleveland Browns moving forward. Somebody asked Greg Williams in a press conference recently whether or not he would like Jimmy Haslam to just call off the search and name him the head coach right now. He gave a non-response to that, but I'm sure he does. I'm sure he'd be thrilled. I'm sure Greg Williams regardless of how many coaching jobs he said he's turned down in the past or like forgot to fax his resume over or uh, entered the wrong LinkedIn profile into the application. I don't think there have been a lot of head coaching offers for Greg Williams. Maybe a couple. He's been in the NFL since 1990. So obviously that is a long time to be a coach in some capacity. So I am sure that there have been Certain offers for him, maybe he did turn down a couple, it wasn't the right time for him, but I find it hard to believe that the only head coaching job that he just chose to accept was the Buffalo Bills, and that he got all these other jobs, and he was just like, nah, I'm good. I got to coach the greatest franchise in the history of the NFL, the Buffalo Bills. I had so much fun going 3-13 and and 6-10 and and 8-8 and that I just, I, uh, I don't want to do it again. This was the peak of my career, so I have a lot of trouble believing that Craig Williams has had all these other head coaching offers. Um, And so, yes, of course, I think he would be thrilled to remain on, go from interim to to permanent head coach of the Cleveland Browns. I, Jordan Zerm, would not be thrilled with that. 
And there, I think today is a good day to sort of break down why I would not be thrilled with that and dig in a little bit into just Greg Williams' career, some numbers from when he was a head coach and a defensive coordinator for a lot of different teams. Um, and I, it was interesting today as I was preparing for this podcast because I was trying to see if there were any patterns and just patterns in defensive rankings, patterns in if he was his defenses have been historically better against the pass and better against the run. Um, the the one thing that I think a lot of people know about Greg, if there is one thing that has sort of maintained itself, it is how he schemes his defenses and how he, his philosophies as a defensive coordinator. And I think we obviously know um, the aggressive style of Greg Williams. We know about his love of corner blitzes. We know about his love of safety blitzes. We know about his love of blitzing at just really the worst time sometimes. Maybe his worst tendency as a defensive coordinator is sending the blitz when the other team knows it's going to be a blitz. And I don't know if there is a statistic that you can find out there on the percentage of screenplays that are successful against a Greg Williams defense, but I feel like it's in the 80s, especially in his two years here as the Cleveland Browns. So, um, you know, he... He loves to blitz. Uh, he loves to play uh, dime defense packages with six defensive backs. Now, obviously, last season was a bit of an anomaly from a Greg Williams scheming standpoint. There was an article about how he was in his base 4-3 defense um, over, I'm going to forget what the number was now, but it's like 60-70% of the time, maybe even as high as 80 he just really didn't, for whatever reason, he really didn't feel like his personnel last season, his first season as the defensive coordinator for the Cleveland Browns, would allow him to play the sort of defense he's played for a lot of his career where, you know, you come out with six defensive backs. One of them can be a linebacker slash cornerback kind of hybrid that is blitzing the quarterback or, you know, covering a, a running back out of the flat or playing over the middle of the field. Um, it, he just didn't do that last year. He obviously... All the jokes about Jabril Peppers lining up 300 yards away from the ball. Um, he didn't feel like he could play press man coverage a lot uh, on the outside. He was playing a lot of off coverage with his corners, which uh, to an extent I understand the, the Browns were not in the position with defensive backs that they are this year. They didn't have the type of talent that they have this year. They now have Demarius Randall as a safety, which has opened up a ton of what Greg's wanted to do on defense. And I think you've obviously seen the improved results from the Browns defense. But um, in terms of patterns... That, to me, is really the only thing I could find that was really a, a similarities from year to year from Greg Williams and the type of defense that he was running, the schemes that he was running, sort of the personnel that he was putting out on the field. But when you, when you look at, at the numbers of Greg Williams, and this maybe this is reason number one in the case against Greg Williams being made by Jordan Zerm right now in the, in the court of public opinion uh, for the next head coach of the Cleveland Browns, is there is so much variance in Greg Williams and the defenses that he has coached. There have been years where they have been elite, and then you look to the next year and they are at the bottom of the league. And obviously not all of this is on Greg Williams. A lot of it has to do with the type of players he had. There's a lot of turnover in the NFL. There's a lot of moving pieces. There's injuries. There are obviously things that play a factor into all of that. But I thought it was really interesting how much variance there was in the numbers uh, from Greg Williams and the defenses that he coached. And really where I started was 2001, and this was the first time that he was hired as a head coach for the Buffalo Bills. He was the head coach there for three seasons, 2001, 2002, 2003. Um, when he got there, they went 3-13 and 13 his first year as a head coach. They gave up 26.3 points per game. That was 29th in the NFL. 
And I also was looking at some more advanced statistics in DVOA, which essentially is a measurement of how good or bad a defense was compared to the league average. Um, so for defensive numbers, if you have a better defense, your percentage, DVOA is in a percentage, is in the negatives. Um, if you're bad, if you're giving up a lot of points, it's in the positives. And in 2001, the Buffalo Bills had a 12.6% defensive DVOA, which means essentially they were 12.6% worse than the average defense that year. That was 27th in the NFL. The year before Greg Williams got there, the Bills were seventh in DVOA. Um, so that's a that's a drop. It's a twenty place drop um, for the Buffalo Bills for Greg Williams in year one. And things didn't really get better in year two. In two thousand two, Bills were giving up twenty four point eight points per game. That was twenty eighth in the NFL. So they moved up one spot. Uh, they went eight and eight that year. So obviously the record improved, but they were still. Uh, 5.9% defensive DVOA, so that jumped up a little bit, but that was still only good for 24th in the NFL. Um, it was really in 2003 where the defense really took a leap. They gave up just 17.4 points per game. That was fifth in the NFL. Negative uh, 11% defensive DVOA, so they were 11% better um, than the average defense in the NFL, and that was good for seventh in the entire league. But they went 6-10. and 10. Obviously, some offensive struggle played into that. But that was really the first year that you know, that when he was with the Bills as a head coach, um, the team performed defensively like you might expect from a guy with a defensive background. Um, he then leaves Buffalo. He becomes the defensive coordinator with the Washington Redskins. He was there when Sean Taylor was there, and he oversaw a couple of really incredible defensive years for the Washington Redskins, both in 2004 when he got there and in 2005 as the defensive coordinator. They were fourth in defensive DVOA, which is a, a big deal. They made a huge leap. Then you hit, you hit 2006, and they were dead last. So they go from fourth to dead last in 2006. They get back up to seventh in DVOA in 2007. That was his final year there. So obviously three really good years, one bad year. But it wasn't even like sort of bad. It was just they were the worst defense in the NFL. Um, and then from there, he goes to Jacksonville in 2008, 24th in DVOA. He leaves Jacksonville. He goes to New Orleans. And this is really where he got a lot of both good and bad press. Obviously, we don't need to get into Bounty Gate here. Everybody knows what happened there. But, you know, they won a Super Bowl with him there. But really the defensive numbers... Um, weren't great. When he got there in 2009, they were 17th in DVOA. They were 10th in 2010, which was better. But then they fell all the way to 28th in 2011. Um, the Bounty Gate stuff all happened, and he was disciplined for that. And So there's just a lot of variance in these numbers, um, which, is, which is just really interesting. And, and one of the things that I think sort of would worry me the most in terms of Greg Williams as a head coach, and especially with the defense, is can you know year to year what you're going to get from Greg Williams as a defensive coordinator? He's obviously had some phenomenal years in Washington, phenomenal year in New Orleans, really good year with Buffalo. But then you look at the other years he was in these places, and there's a drop to dead last, like I mentioned. There's 28th with New Orleans. There's 24th with Jacksonville. You know, the Browns' defense was atrocious with him last year, and sure, they you know they were fielding a roster that made it difficult for, for Greg to play the way he wanted. I also think Greg brought a lot of it on himself by how he played. Played so conservative, played so afraid of his personnel being beat that um, teams just sort of ran wild on them, and 
I think that's really concerning for me is that there just isn't a pattern. There just isn't the knowledge of, okay, I know they're going to have a steady defense every single year under Greg Williams. If there is one thing you know about Greg Williams' defense, it is that he is aggressive and he likes turnovers. He wants his defense to uh, make the offense turn the ball over as much as possible. And some of the numbers, again, reflect that a lot. Obviously, the Browns right now, as of Week 16, they have 30 turnovers as a defense, which is insane. 30 turnovers for a defense is insane and almost will surely regress next season. I don't think there's any way the Browns are going to get 30 turnovers or 30-plus turnovers two years in a row. In 2009, when he was with the Saints, um, that defense got 39 turnovers, which is absurd. That feels like it's a record. I don't know if it is, but it certainly feels like it. But then again, you go through some of these numbers, and there's more variance. You know, like 2010 with the Saints, that dropped to 25. 2011 with the Saints, that dropped to 16. Total turnovers uh, for his defenses. Then you got a couple years, 2014, 2015, 25 turnovers, 26. Then 2016, 2017, obviously 2017 was with the Browns, but 18 turnovers, 13 turnovers. So there's just so much up and down with Greg. And part of the reason why I bring up these turnover numbers too, because I think, you know, the turnover numbers obviously reflect how well a defense is playing. For Greg, specifically the type of defense that he runs, where taking the ball away is a priority. And again, you're just seeing so much variance in these numbers and so much fluctuation from year to year that it's really hard to pinpoint on a year-to-year basis with Greg, how his defense is going to perform. Um, and that that also worries me. I, I think that's something that um, is concerning when you talk about a defense from year to year. And I think you even just saw it in between last year's Cleveland Browns defense and this year's Cleveland Browns defense. Obviously, it changed hugely for the better. But next year, if he was to remain here and continue to oversee the defense along with his son, Blake Williams, you just wonder where that defense was going to be. If those turnovers regress, if that sort of, you know, a lot of these have just been strip sacks or strip fumbles from, you know, Denzel Ward has been good at that and Terrence Mitchell has been good at that. And these things that sort of feel like 50-50 balls where a receiver is trying for extra yardage and they rip the ball out, how many of those are going to happen next year just because of the luck that the Browns have had with them this year? So these are all things that you just don't know about and you just can't predict you know, like what is going to be um, the identity of this defense and the, I'm sorry, not the identity. Obviously, the identity will remain the same as aggressive sort of ball hawking defense. But is it actually going to happen? And if it doesn't, is it going to be tougher for this team to take a step forward because the defense playing in a similar scheme isn't getting the sort of things that fuel a defense when a defense relies so much on turnovers and so much on blitzing? That, that really those two things seems to me something that fluctuates so often and can be such a, um, sometimes can be such a, a thing that has to have the perfect conditions around it to happen. You just wonder whether or not Greg is that guy that you want there for four or five years moving forward. So that in terms for me is sort of the numbers on defense and a reason why I don't want Greg sort of back as a, as a head coach. Um, and then there's another reason, and I've talked about this a lot, but the changes that the Browns have made and the changes that have brought the Browns all this success since Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley were fired back in after week eight, I think have so much more to do with Freddie Kitchens and this offense than really anything Greg Williams has done. And if we go back and look at some of these numbers, you know, Football Outsiders is the website that has all these DVOA numbers. And they did an article a couple days ago that was looking at how teams have performed since week 11 of the season. So that's been about five weeks. 
uh, week 11 to week 16. The Browns offense has been just astronomical in terms of improvement, improvement, excuse me. So the offense has gone from a total offensive DVOA on the season of a negative 3.4%. So that's over the whole year, the Browns have been 3.4% worse than the average offense. And obviously in recent weeks before that, it was even, they don't have the numbers from week one to week eight uh, when Hugh Jackson was at the helm, but they were in the double digits of, of negative DVOA. They are now... Since week 11, they are at 25% offensive DVOA. So they're 25% better than the average offense in the NFL since week 11. That is second to only the Kansas City Chiefs, who are quarterbacked by an alien in Patrick Mahomes and have Andy Reid and have Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey and one of the most creative and fun offenses in the NFL. That is an astronomical, that is an absurd jump for the Browns to be hitting that number offensively. But if you look at the flip side of the ball, on defense, the defense has actually been worse since week 11 in terms of what they are overall on the season. The Browns have been 11th overall in defensive DVOA this year. They are 14th since week 11. Now, obviously, that's only a three-place drop. It's not huge, but it is. it has gone the other way. And when you look at it in comparison to the offense and how much better the offense has gotten, it, it sort of puts that in perspective to me because I, Greg Williams... I think has given sort of carte blanche to Freddie Kitchens and the offense, as he should. And I think that's been great. Um, But I think the reasons why this team has done so well and why they've won three in a row and why they've won four or five and why they were, you know, if if the Patriots had just done uh, done their citizen's duty and taken down the Pittsburgh Steelers a couple weeks ago, um, the Browns would have a real shot. I mean, obviously the... Steelers are going to play the trash Bengals this week, and it probably wouldn't have mattered, but man, we would be watching a week 17 game where there are playoff implications on the line for the Cleveland Browns, and I think a lot of that has to do, so much of that has to do with the offense and Freddie Kitchens, uh, and obviously Baker Mayfield. I mean, obviously the play of Baker Mayfield has skyrocketed, but I think a lot of that has had to do with Freddie and some of the schemes and some of the things he's doing on offense. I thought you saw the full arsenal of moves and you know, sort of chess moves in Freddie Kitchen's playbook um, on full display in that game. I think Jake Burns did a really good job, and you can go to his Twitter account or you can listen to his podcast where he breaks down the Browns game every week about you know running different plays off of similar formations and similar. Uh, personnel, so that you know, teams that are watching film each week are looking at a certain for, certain formation and saying, "Okay, this is the play that they usually run off that." And he's adding wrinkles in each week, so defenses remain confused. And uh, I think he did a really great job of that against the Cincinnati Bengals. And obviously, the results sort of speak for themselves. Baker with three touchdowns, no interceptions. The two game against two games against the Bengals, Baker has played out of his mind. Uh, obviously, the Bengals are not the best team in the NFL right now, um, not even close to it. But I still think there's something to be said for all of that. So. It is of my opinion that the offense has so much more to do with uh, the, the turnaround that the Browns have had. And that's why I'm very much, I'm, I've hopped above, uh, aboard the Freddie Kitchens for head coach train. That's maybe a conversation for another podcast as we get closer uh, to the an actual coaching hire. But um, again, I think Freddie Kitchens is the, is the driver behind this turnaround. And I think Greg Williams, while he's done a good job sort of being a stabilizing force, being a guy that has the type of energy that other guys feed off of, which they certainly do, I'm not you know, throwing any of that out the window, but I just think Freddie Kitchens and Baker Mayfield have this team um, rolling towards 2019 in a way that I think maybe anybody who wasn't Hugh Jackson at the helm 
um, would have had a similar um, a similar type of response from the team. And just Greg Williams is the guy that's there right now. But I do think that almost anybody else, it, it would be impossible to do as poorly as Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley did. So, so there's that. I also, you know, some things that are not exactly numbers and tangible and you can see, but there's two things that I wonder about too. I'm, I'm very... It's very strange to me this sort of demeanor change that Greg Williams has had since he's become head coach. He was a lunatic for hard knocks for la- la- all of last year, for all of his career. Like he is a crazy person, and I think his defense reflects uh, someone who is an insane person. And that's fine. That's who he is. That's who he is. That's who he's always been. I get that. It feels like when he became head coach, he sort of turned into a different person. Like, if you remember whatever episode of Hard Knocks it was, and they were playing a preseason game, and he storms in the locker room at halftime, and he's yelling at players and losing his mind, and it felt so forced and so over the top. And I bet you if the camera was zoomed in on anybody's face, there would be a lot of eye rolls going on in that locker room. And I also remember I was at a couple, I went to a handful of uh, training camp sessions this summer. I remember one time I was standing behind the defensive line as they were doing drills, and Greg was just you know, swearing unnecessarily, using words I won't repeat on this podcast. And I remember just seeing Miles Garrett's face, and I remember Miles Garrett just sort of was like, already, man, this is like day two. Already you're doing this? And I remember very clearly picking up on that and seeing Miles sort of roll his eyes at Greg, and Greg sort of, I'm putting on a show for my players and the fans. And I, I, always, that's, I always hated that about Greg. Like, that is my least favorite part of quote-unquote football guys who feel like they have to just bellow at the top of their lungs and yell profanity and tell you you're weak for taking a water break. Like, all of those things. That is Greg Williams. That is who his personality is. And then that sort of just disappeared, and now he's this, like, chill, philosophical... um, He's answering everybody's questions in press conferences. He's going on tangents for 15 minutes about the good old days when he was coaching with so-and-so and and his philosophies. And it's just, it's weird to me. And I wonder if that would be the Greg you'd get through a full offseason. Or if you were like, all right, Greg, you're our head coach. And he has a little bit of job security. If he'd morph back into Greg Williams, the, um, the wild man, the dude that you don't want to walk across in a dark alley past 8 p.m., that's Greg Williams to me. If I saw that dude under a street lamp and it was late, I'm going the other way. He's got that white little flare at the front of his hair that like he got struck by a lightning bolt and it just stayed there and he survived like that. I all of Greg Williams freaks me out. And I think that that's the real Greg Williams and it's been locked away because he's really trying to get this head coaching job. And I just wonder if you unlock that door again and let him back out whether players would get just be done with him by training camp. I know I would. I I'm obviously um, a weak former tennis player, but uh, I'm just saying that that would not be the wave for me if that was the coach that I had to deal with every single day. So I also wonder about that, and I also wonder, and this is, I think, the hardest question for John Dorsey, too, is that is this team playing better simply because Hugh Jackson is gone and simply because there was a good team bubbling underneath the surface of whatever it was that Hugh Jackson was doing this year, years past, and Todd Haley, and it just needed somebody to open the door and just do the simple things to let this team play to its strengths and be what it is? And is there an emotional response to an interim coach that is going to wear off over the offseason? 
uh, and will not be the same next year when they come back in for, for OTAs. And I think that's a legitimate question because I think you see that happen all the time. You saw it happen here with Eric Mangini. You've seen it happen other, uh, other places. The Kansas City Chiefs retained Romeo Crennel after he stepped in as an interim head coach and did a good job, and all the players were like, we love Romeo, and then they were terrible, and they fired him. And this idea of like keeping Greg for another year just to fire him, what, if they started 0-3 or something, or if, even after the season they fire him, it just feels like such a wasted thing to do instead of saying, we have this team, it's ready to take this huge step next year and contend for the playoffs. Let's get somebody in here, whether it's Freddie Kitchens or whether it's somebody else, that John Dorsey and Jimmy Haslam believe can push this team to another level that that just makes so much more sense to me than just hanging on to the guy who is, is was the guy that was there when the boss was let go and he's fun. And you know, he like has happy hour on Fridays at four, you get out of work a little bit early. And I, I just wonder again, and that sort of goes back into my initial point, but I just wonder whether how much that is playing into it as well. And I also think you got to think about Baker Mayfield and whether how long Greg Williams would be here regardless, even if he did a good job. He's 60 years old. He's been coaching since 1990, which is a really long time. Like he's been doing this for, for forever. And obviously he clearly loves football. There was that scene in Hard Knocks where Todd Haley was like, do you go home? And he was just like, no. You know, he's just like always at the facility and that's fine. Maybe he'd be there for 10 more years and it wouldn't miss a, wouldn't miss a thing. But I just... It feels like a retread. It feels like a guy that has not gotten any other head coaching jobs for a reason. It feels like Greg is just, I think Charles Robinson on his Yahoo piece said it best where Greg Williams has been the perfect guy for right now. But I don't think moving forward, Greg Williams is the perfect guy for this team and is the right person to sort of take this team into the future and beyond. I think there's somebody else out there that is more creative offensively or has less variance defensively is going to bond with Baker Mayfield. Is going to take Baker Mayfield's game to the next level, which I think Freddie Kitchens has started to do. Somebody like that that is going to push this team forward. And I, I just think you have this opportunity to pick whoever you want. I really think this Browns job is going to be a job that you can find whatever candidate you want and bring him in here or her. And move forward into the future. And I just think that for all the reasons that I've listed, I just don't think Greg is that guy. I appreciate everything he's done. I think obviously Browns fans are very appreciative of everything he's done here. And this has been an incredible ride from where this season started to where it ended. And this is the most fun I've had watching Browns football in a very long time. And they finally have a future ahead of them. And I just, I think that it would be a disservice to themselves if they just simply said, well, you know, Greg was at the helm. So the players kind of like him. Let's just bring him back. I think that would be a mistake. And I don't think that's what John Dorsey is doing either. I think you heard a name like a, a Chris Peterson from Washington, whether or not they're actually looking at that guy. I think Jason Lockenford today also said they're looking at, you know, almost like 15 to 20 candidates. And, and so that's great. I think that John Dorsey is going to cast a really, really wide net. And he's out there right now looking at candidates we haven't heard of yet. And I think that's great. But you know, there's been a lot of momentum towards Greg, and obviously nothing personal against Greg. You know, although I guess sort of personal, Bounty Gate is still one of the just most terrible things to <laughs> a coach could have participated in. So I think that stigma will always be there with him. But um, I think that is my case against Greg Williams. I would love to hear you know from you guys too. 
if, if you guys agree with that, if you guys are feel the same way about Greg and, and all that. But I thought it'd be interesting to sort of go back, especially and look at his defenses. And it's just, as I said, it's just very wild to me, uh, the variance and how year to year, it's really hard to predict what it, what one of the defenses underneath his wing is going to do. And I think that's that can be a little troubling. That can be a little scary because the Browns are having a really, really good defensive year this year. So does that mean next year they're not going to? Um I guess uh, I guess we will see. A really quick hit before uh, we end this episode, episode three of the rebuild. You know, there's. I feel like the Baker Hugh thing has been talked about ad nauseum, but I just the only thing I joked about this before the first time the Browns played the Bengals, and I was like, man, all I want is for Baker to score a touchdown, turn around, and just look at Hugh. That's it. And I was like joking around. I didn't think he'd ever actually do it, but I was like, that would be the most amazing thing that could ever happen. And then he just did it. And then he just did it. He made all of my dreams come true. And I feel like Baker gave me closure on the Hugh situation. And for that, I appreciate it. Uh, people, you know, the people that are going to get up in arms about that are up in arms about it. And you can predict exactly who those people are. They're Colin Coward, it's Doug Gottlieb, it's Shannon Sharp. It's, you know, it's, it is the talking heads that lean into these characters and get upset about it. And it's all the old, you know, show some respect type of guys that are, that are saying it. So I think it's, the, the response was really predictable from the people that were against it. I will say this. I think now, I think it should be, I think it should be over. I mean, I think next year, some of this stuff with Hugh will wear off. I'm certainly, as, as a known Hugh hater, I think I'm good now. I think Baker gave me what I needed. And between Demarius Randall handing Hugh a football and Baker staring him down on the sideline, I'm good. Like, that was more than enough, and I feel like my heart is full. And I think we can move on from the atrocity that was the Hugh Jackson era in Cleveland. But it's also just funny to me, you know, some of the expectations we put on players versus coaches and how, you know, it's it's fine for a head coach to literally do a media tour to try and like a propaganda tour to like try and convince people that he's still a good play caller and none of this was his fault like just things you don't ever see just the most surreal thing of Hugh Jackson going on multiple not even just one show first take undisputed wherever else he went and a guy that like has you've seen media members tweet about it but you don't even need to be a media member like you just throws people under the bus in press conferences he clearly had uh, plants in the media from Mike Silver to other people where he, you know, used it to get disparaging things out about Sashi Brown and, and all this other stuff. Like, I don't understand wh- why all of that's just, you know, that's cool. But man, the minute, you know, Baker shows a little bit of disdain for a head coach that clearly he did not like, and clearly a lot of the players didn't like, uh, I, it's just the expectations or the rules we put on different people sort of baffle me. So because, you know, Hugh Jackson dressed up in a suit and sat down at a microphone on a television show. It somehow makes it more professional and better than, you know, Baker Mayfield in the heat of the moment, getting emotional and and giving him a little. It wasn't, you know, he, it was a, he had a smirk on his face too. It's not even like he was flipping him in the bird. Like he just backpedaled with a smirk on his face. So that stuff always just makes me laugh, and I just think it's silly. And I do want the Hugh stuff to be done now, and I think it'll be, you know, the Browns will be good enough next year to make us all forget about it, and we can finally move on from it. But. I, the silliness coming from some people about how Baker needs to behave and, you know, what's classy, what's not classy. Like, you know, this is a sport that includes men running 20 miles per hour with helmets on into each other, like battering rams. But we always want to talk about what's classy and what's, you know, what what players should or should not be doing um, in terms of their emotional response to things on the field in a game that is fueled by just 
things we as normal people who don't play football can even understand. So uh, that always makes me laugh. And I think it's um, as predictable as it is, it's still frustrating to hear people get so up in arms about something so small and so silly. And But, you know, here in Cleveland, it is, it's playing well to the fan base. So Baker Mayfield has Cleveland eating out of the palm of his hand, and um, I wouldn't want it any other way. So that is episode three of The Rebuild. Thank you for so much for listening again. You can follow me at Clevezerm on Twitter. Um, you know, subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe on Spotify. Obviously, I'll tweet this episode out every week. But uh, episode three is in the books, the case against Greg Williams. So thanks again for listening, and I will talk to everybody next week.